one announcement, the uh, Easter pageant that North Stonington Bible Church puts on each year will be at April on April 16th, 2006 p.m. at the North Stonington High School Gematorium. So make sure you make note of that and see if we can get that in the bulletin. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy... He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and we continue our study of the Holy Spirit's work. We continue our study of the Holy Spirit's work as it is introduced by our Lord during the upper room discourse the night before He went to the cross. I find that the timing here is is very significant, that Jesus is giving sort of a warning order from military terminology, a warning order to the disciples of what is about to transpire with His going to the cross and because He is leaving. There's going to be a definite shift. And starting in chapter 14, He began to introduce this idea that He would be sending another helper. Verse 16 of chapter 14 I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. Technical word there in the Greek that we saw last time, paraclete, meaning helper, encourager, one who comes alongside, one who assists. He'll give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold Him or know Him. Now, that's important for us to think on that there is this thematic introduction of a contrast between the Holy Spirit and the world. So then we come down to John 15. And we see the introduction of this again in a context where Jesus is warning the disciples against about the opposition that they will encounter from the world. This is a key word here running through this section is cosmos. And we saw that this represents not only the people in the world, but the whole cosmic system of human viewpoint that is antagonistic to Bible doctrine. So we come to verse 1, which reads, These things, now in context, these things specifically relate to what he is teaching that night the Bible doctrine that he is developing on the spiritual life, which involves the command to love one another just as Christ loved the church, the methodology for achieving that, which is based on fellowship with Christ, abiding in the vine. That's that whole section we studied at the beginning of chapter 15, the importance of our fellowship with the Lord. And then he warns in verses 18 through 25 of the antagonism the hostility, the hatred of the world system for those who are believers. He's telling these disciples, you're going to go out from here into a world where nobody is going to like you. There's nothing out there that has any affinity with you and they are all antagonistic to you. Of course, the question in their mind might be, then how are we going to survive? That's why he says, I will send a helper. How are we going to get a response if they're antagonistic? I'm going to send you a helper. You see, we can't witness, we can't convince people 
of the truth of Christianity, we can have no success apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And that is why Jesus says, These things, these doctrines I have spoken to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. And here he uses the Greek word skandalizo is the verb. Here it's the aorist passive subjunctive of skandalizo, which basically has in this connotation the sense of falling, stumbling, and here it's really falling away from doctrine, being driven away from the truth. Like Judas was driven away because he was not a believer, he was driven out from the meeting that night at the conclusion of, of, uh, or in the midst of the dinner. He doesn't want them to be driven away. Now, the reason it's a subjunctive is because that's always potential. The subjunctive mood is the mood of potential, the mood of possibility. And it's always possible that we can, even the disciples he treats as possible, that you could stumble. See, it's always possible not only to fail, but to fail miserably in the spiritual life. It doesn't matter if you're just an everyday, ordinary believer that's been saved for three months, or whether you're a mature believer who's been saved for 40 years and at a high position of of leadership. Anybody can stumble. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. So there we see also a relationship between doctrine and the ability to avoid stumbling. That's the solution. It is not fellowship with other believers. It's not social interaction with other believers. It's not prayer. It's not, all of, it's not spiritual activity or spiritual formation groups or discipleship groups or accountability or all the other things that the modern church is putting up in place of doctrine. It is these things. It is understanding and applying the doctrine. And that these men are going to face incredible persecutions. They, you, they can count on it. If we were to go back and take the time to look at how each one died, a majority of these men died as martyred. Peter was hung upside down on a cross. Uh, there are stories of others that were uh, boiled alive, that were torn limb from limb by wild animals, all manners of torturous deaths. Uh, Paul himself uh, was beheaded. So at this point, Jesus is saying that you have to recognize that at the core, this is a conflict, a spiritual conflict, and the world is going to respond to you in a particular way. Now, let's review a little bit. I want to, by way of introduction, I want to remind us of what is said in three different passages in the, in the uh, New Testament so we can understand the dynamics of what's going to happen when we go out and we try to take a stand to witness for the Lord. We know we're going to face hostility. We're going to face ridicule, antagonism. People just don't want to hear it. I was talking with somebody the other day, and we were, he was commenting on the fact that 30 or 40 years ago, uh, you could at least, if you were going to witness to somebody, talk about God or spiritual things, there was a level of respect and interest in what you had to say, even if they might eventually not agree with you. Today, people just don't want to hear it. You're just some kind of a radical. You know, go keep it to yourself and don't bother me with it. And this is portrayed in the early part of John. We saw this in our study in John 3:18 and following. A lot of times you'll hear people quote, as I do usually on Sunday morning, John 3.18, but we need to see what happens after that. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, when we talk about witnessing, we have to realize the significance of this verse. We'll see it a little more in this passage, but just a little foreshadowing hint of things to come is we see that the issue here is not sin. See, this is so often the problem in revivalism and in so many churches and in the way so many are taught to evangelize is to trot out all the the sins, the social evils or whatever seems to be the the greatest problem today and and focus on that, that you need to give up your sins or you need to repent of your sins and, and it makes sin the issue. But we're going to see that Scripture really doesn't make personal sins the issue in evangelism, the issue is Christ. 
The issue is because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. The light is Jesus Christ. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. This is a general statement. There are still those who are attracted to Christ and who respond positively. But a general statement is the vast majority of the human race is going to reject Christ because they love the darkness rather than the light. Verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. So if you're representing the light and you're communicating the gospel, people are going to hate the light and they are going to avoid it. Verse 21, But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And that's the difference between positive volition and negative volition. Positive volition and God consciousness takes place at some time which we call the age of accountability. Now, I think the age of accountability varies on the basis of a number of factors. Age, maturity, intelligence, environment, all of these are factors. You grow up in the middle of the... the, um, forests of Irian Jaya somewhere, God consciousness may not come until you're uh, a young adult. You grow up in a home where your mother or father are continuously reading Bible stories to you or you're continuously exposed to the Scripture. God consciousness may come as early as two and a half, three years of age. So God consciousness takes place, or the age of accountability takes place. We'll put a B here for birth. Age of accountability takes place somewhere between two and a half and twenty. At that point, this person is aware they have enough information at their disposal to know that God exists. So they know at this point that God exists. And at that point, they have to decide either to want to know more, exercise positive volition, or they reject it and they say, I don't believe it, I don't want to know anything more about God. Now, the ones who are positive here are then going to be presented with the gospel because God is just, God is fair. Anyone who expresses positive volition of God consciousness, God is going to get the gospel to them. Just because they're in the heart of South America in the uh, 5th century A.D. doesn't mean that they're too far away from God's grace that they can't hear the gospel. Just because the history books don't record it and we don't know anything about it doesn't mean it didn't or couldn't have happened. In fact, every now and then we do discover things that indicate that the gospel made it places that we had no idea uh, it it, it was ever near. So gospel hearing comes, and then at gospel hearing, somebody can be either positive or negative to the gospel and accept or reject Christ as Savior. This takes us to our next passage. Romans chapter 1 teaches us this whole principle about God consciousness. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the thing I want you to notice there is that Men are characterized here, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, this this is the negative volition side, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In one sense, Freud was right. Freud talked about the unconscious and the people were suppressing something. He thought it was sex. God says, no, they are suppressing the truth about me. Everyone knows God exists. See, you have a tremendous advantage whenever you witness to somebody. You don't have to prove God exists according to this passage. They already know it. Now, they may not admit it. They may fight tooth and nail that they ever thought God exists. But nevertheless, the Scripture says, God the Holy Spirit tells us in Scripture that that person you are witnessing to knows that God exists. No matter what else is said and done, if they're breathing and they have an IQ that has more than two digits in it, they probably or they do know that God exists. Verse 19, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Every single one of them. I don't care if it's Madeleine Murray O'Hare. I don't care if it's the president of the Humanist Association. I don't care 
who it is, every single human being knows God exists. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, period. It's not you. It's done apart from the gospel. It's done through what's called natural revelation. What's called general revelation is really a term I prefer. The revelation that God gives through the creation, it is a nonverbal revelation. But everything in God's creation screams that there is a creator to every single human being. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, now not necessarily everything about God, but at least this much, enough to make them culpable, enough to make them responsible, is evident. His invisible attributes, His omnipotence, His omniscience, omnipresence, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now, if you go into a witnessing situation and you think, well, I've got to prove to this person that God exists, you've just contradicted Scripture by the, by, by the mindset you've brought to this. You see, this is what we've got to do. We've got to realize that our confidence is not based on what we know, how articulate we are, how well we're able to answer whatever questions might be, might, might come up, but that, that we have a confidence in knowing that we have a role to play, but the determinative role in making things clear and understandable is not ours. Ours is simply to present the information, and it is God's role to make it clear. And He has made His existence clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And this verse insists that there is no person alive who is unaware of God's existence. So that gives us a tremendous, a tremendous amount of confidence from our starting point in witnessing. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became empty or futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. This is describing what happens to the, negative, to the person negative at God consciousness. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. See, what has to happen, because God is God and God has created the universe the way it is, and reality is what God says it is, what happens is whenever somebody rejects God, they have to take those attributes of God and they have to put them somewhere. Something becomes infinite and omnipotent, whether it's matter or energy or nature or some other god or earth goddess or whatever it is, or the state, a government, whatever it is, that power, those attributes that are exclusively God's are transferred to some realm of the creation. Now, I just hate it when this happens. I hate getting profound insights into doctrine as I'm teaching it. Always shakes me up because then I want to stop and think about it a while. Okay. I know last week, I can tell by the attendance this week, I probably blew some brain circuits last week and people just aren't, back, aren't ready. I said, man, if I'm going to get that on an hour, night when I'm short an hour of sleep, I'll never make it, so I guess some people stayed home this morning. Here's a line. Up here you have the order. This is God up here, above the line. Below the line is creation. What happens is, if you deny God in terms of all of His attributes and all of His person, then you have to take those attributes and move them onto some element of the creation. And that's what happens in idolatry. Uh, modern man doesn't have physical idols. We have immaterialized. Now, now we're going to build on this chart. I'm going to try to develop this on the fly this morning. We're going to see the importance of this creator-creature distinction and how it works itself out in relation to some of the things we concluded with last time on the Holy Spirit. But another thing I want you to notice is verse 22. Now, we're all familiar with people like um, uh, Carl Sagan, a number of other people. His name comes to mind. But um, 
I learned something recently that uh, one of that Carl Sagan had a tremendous, tremendous uh, addiction to marijuana. He really couldn't live on the basis of his assumptions. He had to find happiness and tranquility somewhere else. That, those kinds of things always happen. But you look at somebody like Carl Sagan, you look at some of the other evolutionists that are out there and how, how brilliant they are, IQs that are off the charts, educations that are phenomenal. They have two, three, four doctoral degrees, and, and, and when they talk, most people can't understand them. Yet what the Scripture says is professing to be wise, they're fools. See, divine viewpoint says wisdom is not based on your IQ or your degrees. Wisdom is based on how closely your thinking aligns to God's thinking, which is reality. That if your thinking is antagonistic or opposed to God's thinking, then you're just a fool. I don't care how high your IQ is. I don't care what your degree is. I don't care how impressive your vocabulary might be. God says you're a fool. Now, what we've learned here is that, from John 3, is that man hates the light. From Romans 1, we see that negative volition of God consciousness suppresses what they know. They know that God exists. But Paul also insists that all men not only have a knowledge of God, but they have an internal sense of right and wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that what they think is right and what they think is wrong conforms to God's standard of what is right and wrong. Those of you who were here on Wednesday night a few weeks ago when I was gone and watched that, what I think is fascinating film, The Peace Child, and his story about the tribe in Irian Jaya that has so distorted values that the highest value in their culture is to be able to betray someone and to trick them so to the degree that you end up uh, killing them, taking their life, that there is this complete reversal of what we would say to be good values there. What's good is bad and what's bad is good, but there is still a sense that there is something right and there's something wrong. Now, what it is is distorted, but there's always that sense of what is right and what is wrong. And Paul covers this in Romans 2:14 and following. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, they have as part of their internal makeup of their soul a sense of right and wrong. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So there is not only an internal conviction, by that I mean an internal awareness and certainty that God exists, but the internal makeup of man, his very, very moral makeup, the idea of right and wrong, indicates that he knows that God exists. Now, this tells us that in a witnessing situation, that we're already starting off, in a sense, with, with God on, God's on our side. I mean, we've already gotten to first base. They know God exists. We don't have to prove these things to them. Now, in the discussion, you might have to help them understand what they're suppressing a little bit and maybe say a few things that, that, that uh, uh, generate that because it's been a long time since they thought about God. But nevertheless... Despite all their protestations to the contrary, they do know God exists. And they do believe that God exists. But ultimately, just as we have God to aid us in that process, we also have God the Holy Spirit who aids us in making the gospel clear. When we present the gospel, no matter how tongue-tied we get, no matter how fumble-minded we are in the present uh, presentation of the gospel, no matter how much on doing a little Monday morning quarterbacking, we think, well, he said that, I should have said this. The bottom line is that it is God the Holy Spirit who is the sovereign executive of evangelism. This is why he is called the helper. This is specifically the context here of what he helps with. It is making the gospel clear. So we need to review a little bit what we covered last time in verse 26 and 27. 
Jesus said, When the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. Now, last time we went over the doctrine, an introduction to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and I want to review that briefly this morning. Some of you didn't catch it. Some of you need to hear it again. I went home and did some more studying on this, came up with a few new facts and ideas, so we need to incorporate that into the study. First point was that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and we refer to the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. Secondly, we defined the Trinity. We saw that the Trinity is a technical theological word. It was originally developed in the 3rd century A.D. by Tertullian. T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N. Tertullian gave us two doctrines, one true and one false. He was, he was a Montanus at the time. That, that was sort of a 2nd or 3rd century uh, charismatic. Uh, Tertullian gave us the term Trinitas, which means Trinity, but he also believed the soul was material, so he is the uh, father of the view called traducianism that the soul and the body are passed on uh, genetically through procreation. And that is because he viewed the soul as material. But if the soul is immaterial, then the soul would not be passed on by a material means. God would have to create that soul independently. And the Roman Catholic Church, at least since the time of Aquinas, has determined that this is heretical. I don't know that most Roman Catholics understand that, but that's, that's, that's the truth. That's the history. Um, that's our, one of the problems that I run into in trying to teach something like this is we're faced with two basic problems. Number one is that most of you are the product of one of the most hideous education systems that's ever been foisted on a civilization. And so you haven't been taught anything of significance because most of your teachers didn't know any of this stuff. And it's a secular education that has totally ignored anything having to do with theology as being irrelevant. And yet, theology is what has driven every significant movement throughout human history, good or bad. At its very core, it is theology, it's doctrine, whether it's false doctrine, true doctrine, whatever it is, it boils down to that. And so how can you, and if history is the outworking of God's plan, then how in the world can you understand anything about history if you don't understand any doctrine? Well, you can't. And so you're not only the product of a screwed up secular education system, but um, you're, those of you who have been in churches for long are also the product of a view of the church that is so superficial that it doesn't teach you anything. And, and the average pastor thinks that if he teaches what I've taught so far on the Trinity this morning, that that's pretty heavy stuff just to get that far. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer and go home and watch football. See, we, we, we've got such a low level of expectation of what we think that people ought to know to be functional in the Christian life. Folks, the, the old Westminster Creed said it well that we are to, the purpose of man is to, to know God and enjoy Him forever. To know God, that's the key phrase there. Now, we can understand God at one level. We can say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has certain attributes. But that's like kindergarten stuff. That's one plus one equals two. If we're going to know God, we have to push the envelope a little further than that. There is a tremendous amount of information that has been written and studied and developed mostly in the first four centuries of Christianity over the Trinity and the nature and essence of God. In fact, I have a book in my library written in the 7th, 18th century by Stephen Charna called The Existence and Attributes of God, and it's about that thick. And it's just his meditations, his thoughts, and it's in fine print. That's how they printed things in the old days. And... Um, it's just, and yet, today, we're afraid of that. We're afraid of knowledge in the church. We're scared to death of, of getting beyond just a few superficial doctrines because, frankly, somebody might disagree with us. 
or might not be able to understand it, so we have to always keep things at the lowest common denominator. And I was always challenged in school from, from junior high on, college, and professors that stand out in my mind, and teachers in high school, professors in college and in seminary, were not the ones that I necessarily did well under. But they were the ones who were probably teaching two feet over my head, and I had to rise to the challenge to understand it. Because I knew that what they were saying was important, and I needed to understand it. And the purpose of going to school was to learn. The purpose of going to church is to renew the mind, the mentality. That means we're here to think. And the, the tragedy, I think, in the last couple of, year, uh, couple of centuries is the church has gradually adopted a model for interpreting and understanding everything the church does. That's, that's, has, it's a social model. Fellowship. We get together. We, we have time together. We get, build friendships and relationships, and we enjoy each other. And we, have, we have fellowship time, and we have church activities, and, and fellowship is important. But nowhere in the Scriptures fellowship produce spiritual life. When Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, he didn't say sanctify them by fellowship. He didn't say sanctify them by prayer. He didn't say sanctify them by evangelism. He said sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. So if we're going to go anywhere in the spiritual life, we have to grow. Now, the other problem that's a real, you know this, without me telling you, is a real problem with me, and that's the idea that, well, we don't want to challenge people too much. You know, they're used to seeing things in 10-minute, 15-minute segments, and then they get a five-minute, and then they get about a two-minute commercial, and then they get, you know, five or ten minutes more. So never, never communicate. The, one of the greatest sins, according to most homiletics professors today, that you, one of the greatest sins you, could, you can commit is to teach for more than 25 or 30 minutes. My question was always, don't you think there's just one or two ideas and doctrines in Scripture that are so deep and so profound and so significant that you, you're not going to be able to get them into an hour? Sort of reminds me of a story Charlie Clough used to tell about talking to a, a Jehovah's Witness one time and and uh, he was witnessing to her, and she said, well, she just couldn't understand the Trinity. She said, well, I just think that, that God couldn't, you know, that, that, that God couldn't be that way because then I couldn't understand Him. And Charlie's response is classic. He says, well, madam, don't you think God might be just a little bit greater than our comprehension? You see, these, these, are, these are profound things, and we have a libraries are filled with tomes of, uh, of discussions and developments of these doctrines, especially from the early church. So, so I'm just trying to just, I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg on this to try to you know, whet your appetite to go beyond just the basics of understanding what the Trinity is to understand why this is so, so important. So the Trinity, by definition, is the technical theological word that designates God as one in essence, and, but, but three co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal persons, known as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We call them Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because of their functions and what they're called in Scripture, not so much because that is their essential reality. The Father did not give birth to the Son. The, birth, the Son does not uh, give birth to the Holy Spirit, something like that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That was our second point last time. Then I went into an extended discussion. I'm going to insert a new point this time. The Trinity came to be un- about the understanding of the history of the Trinity. The Trinity came to be understood in the early church through a series of theological controversies and battles which produced some of the greatest doctrinal statements of all times, and they're called the ecumenical creeds. There's only about six ecumenical creeds. The reason they're called ecumenical, it doesn't have that bad sense that we have today. Everybody come together and who cares what you believe, let's just emote and enjoy the fact that we're all people and we love God, whoever he, she, or it might be. Uh, That's ecumenical today. But in the early church, it wasn't until really... And depending on the historian you read and what you're using as your criterion, Roman Catholicism doesn't really begin as such. doesn't have a clear starting point until somewhere between 600 and 1,000. Now, it depends. If you want to look on papal authority as your benchmark criterion, then you've got to go with Gregory the Great in 600. If you're looking at a clear 
creedal, dogmatic statement that it's based on work that includes works in the salvation formula, then you've got to go with the Fourth Lateran Council in about the uh, 11th to 12th century. So it just depends where you want to hang your hat, what nail you want to use as the criteria, where you put it. But before that, the Roman Catholic Church, it was the Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. There's only one church. There's no denominations. There's no East, West, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran. That doesn't come until 1500 with the Protestant Reformation. There's just one church. And so that's why they're called ecumenical creeds, because everybody agreed to these doctrinal statements. And they are, they are not only are they profound, well-thought-out statements, but the, they were fought over for several decades. Now, the three questions that really came into uh, being at this time that these tried to answer were, first, who was Jesus before He came? What was Jesus when He came? And what is the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Son and to the Father? Those are three questions that came up. Now, the first question, who was Jesus before He came? We're trying to understand the relationship this is really where we are in our study of pneumatology here, is the study of the issue of the relationship between the Trinity members. Now, the first suggestion is what's called modalism. And I find every time I teach this, just about somebody comes up and says, that's really kind of the idea I had of the Trinity. It's that God just expresses Himself in different modes at different times. Sort of like putting on a mask. Now He's the Father Another time he represents himself as the Son, and at another time he represents himself as the Holy Spirit. But then what do you do with things like the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist when Jesus is being baptized in the water and God the Father is speaking from heaven, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit is descending as a dove. There you have all three present at the same time in the same place. So they're obviously three distinct persons. This was called modalistic monarchianism, modalism. That fell apart. So the next suggestion... See, this is how doctrines form. You, first of all, you come out with all the wrong answers. People look at it and say, I, I don't know what's right, but I know that's wrong. And then the next person tries, takes a stab at you. Mm, that's not right, so you're a heretic and we're going to burn you at the stake. Next guy. <laughs> Dynamic monarchianism. Now, remember the chart I had up here a minute ago where I put the creator above the line and the creature below the line? Okay, God, this, this turns it sideways. Here's eternity past, all the way on the left. And this is where the, where the Creator is. Anything on this side of the line is essentially a creature. Even if He starts in eternity, He's a creature. He has a beginning. So that makes an adoptionism, or dynamic monarchianism, also called adoptionism, that Christ is really created by God at some point, even if it's in eternity past, and in one form, he, he gets a deity at the baptism with John the Baptist, and it's elevated to deity. And then uh, that was one form. And then along came a guy named Arius. Arius was the bishop, A-R-I-U-S. Arius was the bishop, of, or was a deacon in, a, Alexand- um, in Alexandria in Egypt. And he had the idea that, that God really, you've got... God's eternal here, and then Christ begins. There was a time, therefore, when Christ was not, and then all other creatures. So Christ is really created in some time in, before Genesis 1, but, but before the angels and before man and all the other creatures. So Christ then becomes part of creation. God is up here above the line. He's the creator. Below the line is everything God creates. In adoption, in Arianism, and there's a modern term for Arianism. I wonder if anybody's guessed it so far. Jehovah's Witnesses. That's the modern Arian heresy. Below the line you have the creation. So you're going to put Jesus Christ here. And anything associated with Jesus Christ is going to put the Scripture and you're going to put the V for visible church. 
the body of Christ. You see, all of a sudden what you've done by making Christ less than God is you've reduced His significance and everything. Scripture is not as significant anymore. The church isn't significant anymore. Something's got to take the place, therefore, of God. What's going to move up there is you're going to have some kind of a mystical creation that's got to move up here in order to fulfill that divine role. And religiously speaking, in Eastern Orthodoxy, they really make it the church. It's the mystical church. Now, Christians can make mistakes. The creeds can make mistakes time and time again. But it's the mystical church that's never made a mistake. That's in their writings. The mystical church is inerrant. It's, ne- it's infallible. It never makes mistakes. Or, from a political viewpoint, what you put up above the line is the political state so that it becomes the ultimate definer of everything. So that's the implications of this. And this is why uh, I brought this in. This into play last week is because now we have to ask the question. We go from who is Jesus before he came, and you have the problem of Arianism. Arianism makes Christ a creature. It makes Christ a creature. Now, this was resolved at the Council of Nicaea. And at the Council of Nicaea, they made the statement that Jesus Christ, at the Nicene Creed, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, begotten of the Father, as only begotten. And they use that word begotten is different from birth. He's not born. He's begotten. That's a technical term. See, in the church we develop technical terminology to define relationships. Jesus, the relationship of the Son to the Father is that He is eternally begotten. There never was a time when He wasn't. He's always begotten of the Father. So He's only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Can you say it any clearly, any more clearly? Begotten, not created, of the same essence, homoousios, of the same essence as the Father. They're identical and they share all the same attributes. Now, the battle with Arianism went on for several centuries. After that, that's 325 A.D. It goes on for several centuries. Battles all throughout Egypt. I mean, all throughout Europe. And in the 400s, 5th century and 6th century, you have a problem in Spain with Arianism. Everybody after that problem in Spain was was Arian. That was Arian Christianity. It wasn't a wasn't related to Rome, which is good at that time. It wasn't related to Rome. It's not Nicene. They don't understand the Trinity, and they have the first or the Second Senate of Toledo in 447. Now, they're battling Arianism. They want to get rid of Arianism. And at, that, at the Second Senate of Toledo in 447, they said, they didn't put it into the creed, but they made the statement that the Son, that the Holy Spirit not only proceeded from the Father, but He also proceeded from the Son. Now, what's the context? What is the historical context of Second Senate of Toledo. They're fighting Arianism. They understand that if the Father and the Son are going to have the same essence, then if the Spirit's going to proceed from the Father, He's got to proceed from the Son, because if He doesn't proceed from the Son, then no matter how much you stand up and recite the Creed, at the core of your thinking, you've got an inequality in the Trinity, and that somehow will work itself out culturally. You see, culture is the product of religious beliefs. Culture doesn't just happen. Culture is how you do things. You look at the culture of your home, and you look at the culture of somebody you know, some family you know that's as screwed up as it can possibly be. They have a culture in the home. You have a culture in your home. What makes the difference between your culture and their culture? It's doctrine. You see, culture, and theirs is based on their religious belief that nothing matters, there is no God, and there are no values, and anything goes. See, the core of everything is your religious belief. So, in the 4th century, they adopt the position at the Second Council of Toledo that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's called double procession from the Father and from the Son. And then, But they don't make it as part of the creed, but at the... Uh, 
Third Synod of Toledo. It's called by King Recarid of Arricarid of Spain, who was a recent convert from Arianism and wanted to completely destroy or remove Arianism from, from uh, Spain. His recommendation there, and they followed it, was to incorporate the phrase, and from the Son, into the creed, so that they revised the Nicene Creed as it's expressed in the Creed of Constantinople, and we see it right down here, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Life-Giver who proceeds from the Father. That was the Creed of Constantinople. But at the Synod of Toledo, they inserted the phrase, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. In Latin, it's the word filioque, and it's called the filioque clause. Now, the thing is, most people think theology, oh, this is just wrangling over words. Let me tell you what Philip Schaff wrote a hundred years ago in his church history book, our eight volumes of church history, and listen to how Schaff shows the implication of this. I just want you to be impressed with... Doctrine matters this much, and you ought to be here every time the door is open. It changes everything. This is not just some abstract, academic little nicety that I somehow dug up out of some dusty tome somewhere. Listen to what Schaff says. The double procession follows inevitably from the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son. Let me translate that for you. It is an inev- double procession is an inevitable, inevitable conclusion if you believe that the Father and the Son are of the same substance, the same essence. If you really believe that they're identical in essence, then the double procession is the logical conclusion from that. And then he says, and from the identity of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, that the term Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ both refer to the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. If you believe the Spirit of God and the term Spirit of, God, Spirit of Jesus refer to the same person, and you believe that God the Son and God the Father are the same essence, then double procession logically follows. It also forms a connecting link between the Trinity and Christology, because it helps you understand who Jesus Christ is. See, now when you think about God and you go home and you say, well, Scripture says that we're to know God. I know a lot more about God than I did yesterday, so my capacity to appreciate God is really advanced now. It forms a connecting link between the Trinity and Christology, the doctrines of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and between Christology and anthropology. That is, how the Bi- what the Bible teaches the makeup of man is. By bringing the Holy Spirit and His work into more immediate connection, because the Spirit proceeds from the Son. So he brings, this brings the Holy Spirit and His work into more immediate connection with Christ, and through Him with the church and the believer. If the Spirit proceeds from Christ, then there's a more intimate connection between the Spirit and Christ and and anything that Christ is associated with, such as the church and the individual believer. So it's not just an isolated point, but it ricochets through every other doctrine of Scripture. Then he says, It was therefore not accidental that the same Augustine, this is, Augustine, Bishop of, Bishop, of Hippo, Bishop of Hippo, who first taught clearly the double procession in his book, De Trinitate, he just has pages on it, developed also those profound views of sin and grace. Okay, let me read that again. This is really important. It was therefore not accidental that the same Augustine who first taught clearly the double procession developed also those profound views of sin and grace which took permanent root in the West but had no influence in the East. You see, what he's saying is that the implications of the double procession are so profound that by having an accurate Trinitarian theology, Augustine could also develop an accurate anthropology that understands man is a sinner in need of grace, but because you have a fractured and fragmented and false trinity, no matter how much you affirm the creed, because at its core you don't believe they're fundamentally equal, Eastern Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, never developed an understanding of sin and grace. If you don't understand sin and grace, you can't understand salvation. 
And aside from that, in terms of implications, we're right back where we were in, in this chart, and that is that in the East, because Jesus Christ is down here as an order of creation, a creature, either the church or the political state has to move into the vacuum of ultimate power. And so you create a culture that is continuously predisposed to totalitarian rule because at their very core, when you get into the Trinity, the Trinity helps us understand authority. Because in the Trinity, there's always authority. There's the authority of the... Let me use this other chart. There's the authority of the Father over the Son. The Son said, I can do nothing unless the Father gave it to me. There's the authority of the Father over the Son and the Father and the Son over the Holy Spirit, but they're co-equal. So you can have equality and respect a person's individuality and give them a position of equality without saying that somehow they're within an authority relationship without saying they're less than equal. But if you don't have this as your ultimate starting point, then it's going to screw up everything else in your culture. Now, the West got into totalitarianism from a totally different perspective, but this is what happens in the, uh, in the East and Eastern Orthodoxy. And I just wanted to go back and give you a little review on that because I know that's new. You won't hear too many places. I, kinda, I was digging through this last week. I've thought about this. I've understood most of these things for a number of years. And last week I got involved in a series of emails back and forth between Charlie Clough, who's about the only other person I know who's even thought that this kind of thinking exists, and um, Jim Myers in Russia. And Jim sent me a position paper written by one of the missionary organizations over there in helping the missionaries learn this so that when they are teaching and communicating to Russians who come out of this context realize that whether they're an atheistic Russian or a religious Russian, their culture has been dominated by this kind of thinking, and so they have to understand these, these elements. Now, where that takes us, took us last time from there, we went on into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We saw that the names and titles for the Holy Spirit indicate that He was divine, that He had various, various titles, that His works and attributes were such that indicated that He was fully God. That was point four. Point five, we saw that titles indicated the deity of the Holy Spirit, that he's identified with God, called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And we saw, point six, that, the person, that he has a personality. He is an individual person. He is not just some force emanating from God, but that both grammar and terminology indicates that he is a person. And then the final point, point seven, was that the Spirit proceeds. This is the technical term. Just as we say that the Father eternally begets the Son. So we can say that the Spirit is e eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is the technically correct way to express the relationship between the Father and the Son. And all of that comes out of John 15, 26. Now Jesus says that because we need an assistant to handle the antagonism of the world. And this assistant has to be fully God. So he comes, he proceeds rather, ek peruomai, he proceeds from the Father, para, from the side of the Father, which hints that he is fully God. Now, verse 16, Jesus say, uh, 16, 1, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. And then he goes on to warn them that, goes on to warn them that they will make you outcasts. See, this has social implications. This has social implications that, that once you get out there and you start representing me, it is going to change your life. You will be an outcast. You will be treated as a, as a Gentile almost. Your friends and family that have always uh, liked you and appreciated you are now going to turn their backs on you. And everything in your life is going to change. It says, they will make you an outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do. Then Jesus begins to outline what they're going to do for them. 
He said, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. So he underscores that the reason there is hostility is because they have not known the Father. And we go back to John 3, it was about John 3.20, and the reason they reject the light is because they haven't known the Father. So there's no relationship there. There's no positive volition at God consciousness. Verse 4, but these things I have spoken to you, once again, all these doctrines I have been communicating in chapters 13, 14, 15, I've spoken to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. See, that's the point. We have to learn the doctrine, and then when the time of testing comes, it's in our soul so that we can recall it. And Jesus says, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning... Because I was with you. It wasn't necessary. When I was with you at the beginning, I was making a legitimate offer to Israel. We didn't know yet whether they would accept. I mean, he knew in his omniscience. But he said it wasn't the right time. But now, now that the time has come and they've rejected me, I have to warn you of what's in store for you. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? They really don't understand. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. See, they're not concerned. Where are you going? Where are you going and why? Why are you leaving us? He understands the real question. See, Peter did say, well, Lord, and Thomas did, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, no, no, no. You're not really asking where I'm going. He said, why are you leaving me? You know, they're whining out here. Lord, don't leave us. (laughs) Sorrow has filled your heart. You you haven't caught the plan. You don't have the, the picture. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. Cause, effect, in history. Jesus had to leave before the Holy Spirit came. It's part of God's plan. Jesus is also considered a Helper, and that's why the Holy Spirit is called another Helper, another Assistant. If I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you, but if I go, I will send. This is a future active indicative of Pimpo, and this is not the same as uh, the procession of the Spirit. This is future tense. This has to do with the Holy Spirit's role in time that I will send him, and this is a reference to what happens on the day of Pentecost when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to the church. Verse 8, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And this is a verse that you ought to really understand in terms of uh, a lot of different factors, but in terms of witnessing. He, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict who? How many times you get in Christian circles and they say, I'm under conviction. Are you an unbeliever? I understand the whole doctrine of conviction here. He will convict the world, not the believers. Not the church. He will convict the world concerning three things. Sin and righteousness and judgment. So this is the Holy Spirit's mission in relation to the world. Now, remember the context. You're going to be hated by the world. You're going to be despised by the world. You're going to be rejected by the world. But you're going to have a helper who's going to handle the world for you. And that's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do three things specifically in relationship to the world. Notice he didn't say he's going to heal them. He doesn't say he's going to uh, have supernatural manifestations to demonstrate the veracity of Scripture. doesn't say that. said this is what the Holy Spirit is going to do for every single member of the cosmic system. And it excludes all that supernatural bogus stuff that everybody wants. It's content-oriented. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The word for convict is the Greek word elenko. Whenever you have a combination of gamma with a hard letter, it always goes to an N. So that's elenko, kind of like angelos. It's A-G-G, but it goes to an N. Elenko. In the ancient world, this is a judicial term. I, I can't stress this enough. We live in an age that wants to make everything subjective, emotional, and relational. But all the terms that God uses to describe salvation, all the way up to confession of sin, are words that come out of the law courts of the ancient world. Because our standing before God is related to absolutes 
and our relationship to His absolute righteousness as the supreme judge of the universe. And the issue is whether or not we have the qualifications to have a relationship with Him. And so if you don't have the qualifications, you're going to be like a criminal in court, convicted. It doesn't have anything to do with how that criminal feels. It has to do with whether the evidence is presented to demonstrate their true guilt, not their guilt feelings, but their real guilt. Did they violate the standard? And that's what conviction means. It means to convince that you violated the standard and to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world, to prove and bring a case against the world. Now, I ran across a couple of fantastic statements this last week in Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology. He says, There are three specific things the Holy Spirit is going to make clear to the unbeliever. That is his responsibility in evangelism. Notice it is not our responsibility to do this. Our responsibility is to make clear what the Scripture teaches, but the Holy Spirit is the one that convinces, but they might still reject. That's their volition. He goes on to say, In view of a finished work by Christ wherein sin is born and all blessings are secured, the immeasurable failure for the individual for whom Christ has died is that he does not believe on Him. It is noticeable, though contrary to general opinion, that the Spirit does not enlighten the man with respect to all the sins the individual has committed. See, when you look down here at John 16, 7, it says... uh, or John 16, 9 says, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. It doesn't say concerning sins because they smoked and drank and chewed and went with the girls that did. No, it doesn't say because they went to movies and they danced and they were arrogant. It doesn't say that. Concerning sin because, because they do not believe in me. You see, that's the issue. The issue isn't personal sins. The issue is the work of Christ on the cross. The Spirit does not enlighten the mind with respect to all the sins the individual has committed. It is not a matter of creating shame or remorse concerning sin. Now, how many times do you hear preachers and evangelists do that? Elenco isn't an emotional word. Elenco is a cognitive concept. It's information. It's not a matter of creating shame or remorse concerning sin, nor is it so much as a reminder of sin that has been committed. Though there is nothing, on the, on the other hand, to preclude sorrow or consciousness of sin. In other words... You can feel sorry. That's okay. That might happen. Sometimes we're going to sin and we're going to feel sorry for it. It's not wrong. It doesn't impress God, but it's not wrong. It is rather that since sin has been borne by Christ, there remains the one great and only responsibility of one's attitude towards the Savior who bore him. The issue is not sin. The issue is what do you think about Christ? This unbelief, the Lord declared, is the basis of final condemnation. When he said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To make the unsaved realize this is a task too great for the preacher, and frankly, it's too great for you and me. It must be accomplished by the Holy Spirit, and he will so reveal this specific truth to the unsaved within the elective divine purposes as the gospel is preached to them. You do your job. You make the gospel as clear as you can. Not as clear as it could be made. Not as clear as you've ever heard it made. But as clear as you can make it with the ability, knowledge, gifts that God's given you. And God will do the rest. It's not up to us, folks. It's up to Him. But we have a role. He goes on to say, The fact indicated in this text that the one ground of condemnation is the failure to believe on Christ as Savior confirms the truth restated more than 100 times in the New Testament that the one and only condition of salvation is faith in Christ as Savior. Just for those of you who think that sometimes, somehow, I may make this up or get that somewhere else. This is the teaching of, of, has been the teaching of grace-oriented Christianity for centuries. I mean, we really have a rich... That's one reason I go into all the background on the history as well. It's not only because of its 
implications, but because I want you to understand that that we're not just some blip on the radar screen, some small congregation who has maybe a little hardcore ideas about Christianity out in the middle of nowhere, but that this has roots deep in our Christian heritage going all the way back to the time of Christ. And we have a role, and part of our role as believers is to witness. Now, we will go in, we've run out of time, and on a day when we all had an hour less sleep, it's a little hard to concentrate through some of these things. I understand that. But uh, it's important. Some things you have to do whether you're tired or not. And I hope this has encouraged you. The point that Jesus is making to the disciples and to us is that we are going to face antagonism, but we have the greatest assistant in the universe. And that is God the Holy Spirit. And just because you are witnessing to somebody and they have objections and they react to you doesn't mean you're not doing your job. Because God the Holy Spirit is using everything we say and He is the one. And even though that person may reject the Gospel and may reject Christ and may be negative, what the Scripture says is they understood it. Just as every person knows God exists, when you present the Gospel, they understand it. They may reject it. But God the Holy Spirit made it clear to them, I don't care how badly you fouled it up. I've even been in, I've even been in sermons where the gospel was so muddied and fuzzy, but the guy quoted good verses. And God the Holy Spirit used those verses to bring people to salvation, despite all the bad theology of the person delivering it. You see, that's who it depends on. It's not on us. It's on God the Holy Spirit. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your grace and the way you do provide everything for us in the spiritual life and you've given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who teaches us, who guides us and that he is the, the source of all power and ability in this church age. And Father, we thank you that he is the one who helps us when we witness and we pray that, he, uh, that we continuously are mindful of our responsibility to make the gospel clear and he's the one who drives it home. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation that that they would be sure of what the issues are now. That it's faith alone in Christ alone. It's not what we do. It's not moral reformation or anything else. It's simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you've put your faith in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied here this morning and pray that you would keep us mindful of them and challenge us with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are we singing?